0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast, recorded live from the Ruby Barn on Main Street here in Suffield, Connecticut. This is your host Sean Devine, and I'm barely known on Twitter. Today, I'm joined by very well-known internet uh, Rubyist uh, Peter Cooper. Hey, Peter. Hey, how's it going? Going great. So there's so
1: a barely known pun, by the way.
0: Oh, thanks. Yeah, (laughs) sort of my shtick. I I told the story in the last episode but the the uh-huh. story goes that I came up with that um that uh moniker on Twitter so that if I once had a radio show I'd have a good sign off. <laughs> so, then I had to find the radio show to do. Super. But uh anyhow. So uh we've got a million things we could talk about because you've been around in the community for a long time and uh, have been super prolific. But um, why don't why don't we start just by uh, you describing uh, yourself in the way that you usually do to introduce uh, you and your companies to people?
1: Wow, awkward. Um, yeah, I'm not really good at the whole uh, elevator pitch. It tends to turn into like a 10-minute ramble, but I'll try and be succinct. Um, yeah, I've just been a, a developer for many, many years, less of a developer now, mostly because I kind of uh, indulge my passion of... Just working with like content, people hate that word, but uh, that's what it is, uh, content and just uh, different experiments online and things like that. Uh, so I kind of moved from being a developer just sort of 10 plus years ago um, into building Rails apps and things like that, but then very quickly began using those uh, apps to process content and do RSS work and stuff like that, which is an area that I had a lot of success with. Um, And then kind of used the uh, fruits of my labor there to um, get more into blogging. And I wrote a Ruby book, uh, Beginning Ruby. Um, And I've kind of gradually just progressed and stumbled from experiment to experiment. Uh, And now I'm perhaps uh, best known as the publisher behind a bunch of different email newsletters. So uh, these include and they actually began with Ruby Weekly uh, and then quickly moved on to JavaScript Weekly, HTML5 Weekly and a whole bunch of others now um, in a variety of topics and more to come, hopefully. Uh, so yeah, it's very hard to do. I, I can't really describe myself very well just because I don't think of myself as I do X. Um, I sort of do X and then very quickly I'm adding on Y and Z and then I'm, yeah completely lost X. So, uh, yeah, I'm a bit of a chameleon.
0: Well, in preparation for, um, for this conversation, I went to your website at peterc.org and, uh, it's really a, It's quite the uh, inventory of things. Um, have you been maintaining that kind of you know, categorized list of, of what you've been up to for the last 10 years, or did you one day sit down and say, okay, I'm going to list out the the 125 different things that I've done in the last 10 years?
1: Uh, yeah, I think it was about three or four years ago I've sat down and made that page, um, and then I just sort of gradually add to it over time. Uh, I haven't updated it for a while now, unfortunately, uh, but hopefully this... in Interview will give me um, some motivation once you publish this I'll put it up on the site uh, and I just found out I was losing track of you know if I was interviewed or just if I did anything I just kind of lost track of it I have a really bad memory uh, so I just like to note things down um, that's one thing I liked about blogging actually and why I, I blogged all the time because uh, you know as many people might know I, I ran the Ruby inside blog and uh, just t- I put tons of stuff up like you know, tutorials and things like that and it wasn't actually always for the Reader's benefit. It was often for mine because I realized that you know if I didn't write about something, I wouldn't remember it. Um, and I definitely have that issue that I see many Rubyists having on Twitter, where they say, "Oh, I googled for something, and uh, my own article came up." Uh, <laughs> and I've had that happen so many times now. So, I feel that but, way about uh, yeah.
0: I feel that way about Twitter too. That you know, of every right. ten tweets that I make, I bet three or four or are for like posterity for my own sake, just to remember what i was thinking about
1: yeah i think actually twitter kind of ruined me in that regard uh, my blogging kind of fell off a cliff once i you know became prolific at using uh, twitter for stuff so it's now just very small like, insights or links to this and that and then suddenly just like the motivation to blog like disappeared which i think is very sad um i need to find some better ways around that but so i guess i found email newsletters to sort of plug the gap
0: yeah right um, are you back on Twitter now? Do I remember that you quit Twitter? I think I remember that.
1: I did. I quit Twitter for a month. Um, I, I I found that I, I said that I was going to stop interacting on there. I was going to keep reading it, but then I found without the motivation of going to read any responses, I actually stopped reading it entirely. Uh, so it was very interesting to spend a complete month away from you know. I've got like fifty thousand tweets, and I've been on there for you know many years. So I almost become like a, a way of life. So spending a month away, kind of, uh, yeah, kind of taught me a few things, um, but then also about how to use it and some of the problems I was having with it. So, um, yeah, it was do, an interesting do experience.
0: Have, do you have tips? Are there like the top three things you learned <laughs> quitting Twitter?
1: Well, I was trying to build up a uh, like a, a commandments of using Twitter because some of the problems that I ran into were things where you kind of get dragged into other people's arguments or. Where you perhaps express opinions that very quickly get jumped on by um, rather odd groups of people, um, you know, maybe you have a tweet that, out of context, seems offensive in some way, and it gets retweeted by someone with you know hundred thousand followers, and the drama from that. Um, so, just from all of these kind of experiences over the years, and sort of seeing how I don't know motivated some people are to very quickly have knee-jerk reactions to things, um, kind of made me start thinking about. What do I post on there? Um, you know, do you just put casual opinions on there or do you try and focus on more kind of uh, valuable stuff? And I guess now what I've started to do is I've kind of pulled away from humor and just knee-jerk kind of opinions about things and actually think, well, can I make the majority of my tweets actually be links to things, uh, images that are interesting in some way um, or YouTube videos, things like that. And so I'm a kind of more sharing stuff now than just reacting to stuff um, and that seems to be a, a good way of going about it um, and then you just need to make sure that if you do see an argument or you know some kind of like drama going on in a community or something like that, just don't get involved um, so yeah, I haven't boiled this down to any serious commandments yet but that's the general gist of what I discovered uh, would work well
0: Are you the kind of guy that gets into drama in the rest of your life or was it like a unique to Twitter phenomenon?
1: No, my life is extremely drama free. Um so I'm actually one of these people that watches uh, these kind of, you know, shows on TV like uh, a Maury type show uh, we have in the UK. It's not Maury, but uh, a very similar type thing and people express all their dramas and stuff and I uh, like dramatic TV shows and things. And I think I'm kind of making up for the fact that my life is very very calm and uh, I'm a very placid person, so yeah so i I've realized I don't actually want to get involved with that on Twitter, so I try and uh, steer clear of it
0: now about a year and a half ago, I took six months off Twitter Wow yeah okay i'll I'll hand it to you and then reemerged as barely known that's actually where the where the um, Twitter handle barely known came from so you actually relaunched I didn't you know i i I did not technically changed the account. I I basically unfollowed the, uh, 90% of who I had been following, maybe even more. And then refollowed a kind of like you just said, a a pretty specific type of person. And then I've sort of slowly built up from there, but I did it just as an experiment and focus. I I was working on something kind of hard at the time. And, uh, wanted to be able to have, you know, eight to 10 hours a day where I was interrupted by nothing, no email, no Twitter, <laughs> like nothing. And it was, uh, it was successful for the focus reason, but I, I ended up missing it a lot. Um, which sounds a little cheesy, but you know, so many smart conversations happen on Twitter or, or yeah, either get visibility into them, or you have them yourself, or you meet people that are interesting. And, I kind of felt like I was missing out on on that connection. So I, I rejoined and, like you just said, actually very much focused my sort of online efforts in a couple of areas.
1: Yeah. I, I must admit, though, I don't, I try and avoid the conversations now because I found I wasn't really getting a lot out of them. Um, I just think Twitter's a very poor kind of venue when you've got that number of characters to have a discussion. It doesn't seem to work for me, and I'm not quite sure what's going to replace that. Um, I think the thing that I've got a ton of value from is actually following people that seem interesting but who aren't in my domain, mm-hmm. um, because that is something you can very easily do with Twitter. So I follow a lot of people in game development, and I don't develop games other than you know the odd kind of game jam and thing like that. I'm not you know an, in- a, an indie game developer or anything, but I follow you know, many of them. I follow people in fashion and uh, you know the odd celebrity here and there, and people that are in areas of science that I have kind of real no 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 knowledge about ai and stuff like that and i guess seeing what the patterns are in all these different areas i actually find that more interesting now than following people that i know and um, so you know i love the people that i know and uh, obviously have a lot of friends on there but i actually find those interactions to be a lot less valuable than the ones of you know some AI person as you know, kind of going crazy about this paper that's been released or something. And it's like, oh, I've kind of got an insight into some other mm-hmm. aspect of the world. Um, I think that's where I'm seeing the value in Twitter now. It's looking at just the bigger picture and interacting with the world in a, in a bigger way rather than just, say, Rubyists or JavaScript developers and kind of getting engrossed in that whole community thing with kind of air quotes, community. Um, I try and avoid that now.
0: Well, for that reason, I like to follow people that are that uh, uh, pretty commonly talk about maybe three topics because you figure there's going to be like a dead overlap with one topic and you, you, in them you because know, that's how you know them in the first place. And then they'll talk about something like the NBA or like you said, AI or right, the yeah. weather or who knows what, biking, <laughs> running. And I try to then uh, jump off of that relationship and follow the person that they seem to like the best in the adjacent right. community. And kind of yeah. like, you know, spider my way through the relationships that way. That's pretty, I think it's pretty good.
1: It's a big world and it's it's not a bad way of navigating it now.
0: Yeah. I, I really like Twitter. I think it's a great way to meet people in real life too, which is a funny, I would have never guessed that that'd be the case. Um, mm. But I used to live in Chicago. I don't now, but you know, Chicago's a big city and uh, I met a ton of people in Chicago that I ended up having pretty good relationships with from Twitter, um, which I, I, that seemed, that was an unexpected benefit, but
1: one of the things that dragged me back actually is because another one of my many projects is I chair a conference for O'Reilly uh, called Fluent, which is a, well, it began life as kind of a JavaScript conference, but now is really more of a web platform conference. Uh, just, you know, anything to do with web development, uh, we kind of go for with a JavaScript HTML5 lean to it. Uh, and I found, or I kind of realized that Twitter was so useful in reaching out to speakers, uh, seeing, you know, who is respected within a certain, you know, part of the field and, uh, you you know, just kind of becoming known to some of the speakers as well Mm because when you put out, uh, you know, a CFP, you get, you know, a ton of proposals come in, but you often have these kind of glaring gaps in the, you know, in who's applying. You You might see people in the community that you really wish would speak. So you have to do a lot of outreach as well, and Twitter is obviously... You know, an excellent way of doing outreach uh, beyond just email
0: so what goes into being a uh, the chair of a conference like what are the what's the responsibility list
1: from my point of view it's almost entirely about the programming um, and when I say programming I don't mean coding I mean actually kind of coming up with the schedule and who's going to speak and kind of the bigger picture stuff of what is this conference about? Where is it going? What does it represent? What type of people do we want there? Well, not do we want there, but, you know, who are we aiming this at? Um, but then also, you know, what what are the, the topics of the conference, and how can we thread these together into a program that uh, really appeals to people? Um, and it, it was a totally new thing to me. I mean, you know, I'd never been involved with conference organization or anything before I got involved with this, so uh, I really almost kind of... Uh, sort of took me from nothing to, uh, you know, it was a a real sort of sharp learning curve. Uh, But I'm, what, what, like three years in now. Um, And, yeah, it's been a very, just a very interesting experience. Not something I would have ever ever expected to do. Uh, But again, one of these just kind of random, the opportunity came up. Let's go for it, see how it works type things, which uh,
0: I seem to keep stumbling into. seems like conferences are quite the lightning rod for the kind of controversies you were trying to avoid on Twitter, though, to me. At least from the absolutely, outside
1: absolutely yeah um what's up, what, what, what's
0: up with that do you think like why why do they seem to like cause so much drama
1: i'm not entirely sure because obviously one of the things that uh, people might remember from the ruby world is that there was um, an organization of a conference here in the uk called the british ruby conference um so a couple of years ago uh you know they got a roster of like you know lots of top speakers And the only problem was, was um, the entire speaker list was, or at least at the time that it was promoted, uh, was just entirely a bunch of white guys. And someone in the US uh, kind of brought this whole point up. I think it might have been Josh Susser. Um, I think it may have been. I don't know who's involved in the conversation. Um, And somehow, you know, it went on Twitter and a whole bunch of people kind of got seemed to get upset about it. Uh, Sponsors seemed to get upset about it and they... um, had to, you know, withdraw the conference. Uh, and But it's funny that that can happen, yet if when I was running, in, you know, like Ruby Inside, for example, I had a whole bunch of people write for me, and I think they were pretty much all, well, they weren't entirely all white guys, but pretty close. Um, you know, I didn't sort of pay any attention to, I must keep it diverse, etc. cetera, um, in the way that I would with a, you know, conference now. Um but people don't pick up on things like blogs and Twitter accounts and stuff that seems to be entirely online. Uh, you know, or the fact that your open source project is entirely male, you know, committers and things like that. Uh, no one seems to care. But when it's an event, people really care. Um, and I think that's probably because online we have this idea of people being behind kind of avatars and, you know, your identity and your sexuality and your gender and things like that don't seem super important in certain contexts but when it comes to actually getting together in real life those things are very much at the fore you can see them um you know in in real life um or at least for you know like gender and things like that so i think that's where it comes from uh in in real life it's a lot easier to be you know victimized or get into trouble or you know be approached by people you don't want to be approached by um, and to feel unsafe in an environment that isn't diverse Uh, And so, you know, as someone who organizes an event now, um, I absolutely see the value in a way that I didn't several years ago of not just the group of speakers being diverse, but the organizers being diverse, um, your committees being diverse, the attendees being diverse. It actually makes a much better experience, um, perhaps in a way that it's a lot harder to tell on just, you know, online-only projects. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, maybe the uh, maybe the conferences, to your point, put in high relief what's always true, which is that it's, the community is really not that diverse. And you know, maybe it's just easy—you know, out of sight, out of mind. It's easy to to forget that when you're interacting with people through their screen names and avatars, and sort of impossible to ignore when you're watching a panel of bearded thirty-something white guys.
1: Exactly, um, and I think you know a lot of the people that are doing work in the kind of a diversity sphere or just the kind of you know um, treat us with some respect kind of uh, sphere on twitter uh you know, we've discovered that there are many things that go on at conferences that perhaps we have been or perhaps you know as uh, men or perhaps as white men uh, haven't noticed or haven't experienced before um you know when i was seeing some of these things that you know people are you know that that some women go to conferences and just to be constantly accosted and things are going on and uh it's just a real shocker you know it's like well i've never experienced that but the thing is, you can't just go on Twitter and say, "Well, I've never seen that, so it doesn't exist." Because these are people actually telling their stories um, of what's going on. So, I think it's very important to take some of that on board and actually see why are people, uh, you know, pushing ahead with these um, ideas of you know diversity and so on. There is actually an underlying current of things going on that we don't all get to see.
0: Yeah. Well, in, in everything. I mean, I, I don't think programming is all that unique myself, but. You know, everything's got misogyny as like a, you know, a sort of rough foundation that it has to deal with, at least in my experience. Yeah. All right. So, so let's, let's uh switch topics to your newsletters. And uh, since this is the Ruby on Rails podcast, we might as well talk about the Ruby one. So what goes into making, well, before I get there, how does someone sign up? Cause it's an, it's an awesome resource and, and anyone that's listening to this podcast probably does subscribe, but they should, if they don't already. So how, how do they get to it? So
1: you literally go to rubyweekly.com that's just r u b y w e e k l y.com and you stick in your email address and off you go. Uh you get an email that you have to confirm and stuff like that just because we like to keep our uh, list nice and clean but that's pretty much it Um there is a uh, rss feed option on there it's not very good though um, it's almost just like the, the horrible janky html from the email just stuffed into a feed and i noticed it breaks on certain readers so be careful with that um, but then we also do uh, tweet a lot of the items as well to the ruby inside account on twitter so you know if you prefer that method that's another one that you can follow instead
0: so for those that have not read it before, it's, I don't know, somewhere around two dozen links with blurbs, like one sentence or two sentence. No, I call one sentence uh, kind of summaries of what the article is about. Maybe a call out to who wrote it. Um, maybe if it's like categorized in some way, a little tag that says what the link is about and uh, some sponsors sprinkled in and, and, you know, mostly jobs and or, or some jobs and I guess some some. Uh, services and products that, that developers would use. So anyways, that, that's what comes every week. And, uh, what goes into making an issue like, so, so for ne- the next issue, what's the process of assembling all of these things into the issue that ultimately gets emailed out?
1: Well, I'm getting emails off people all the time, uh, saying, you know, here's this thing I've written, check this out, blah, blah, blah. Um, I get a lot of emails of that kind of nature. So As I receive them, I add them into this kind of – it's almost like um, a mini version of Delicious on steroids that's just like for doing this type of work um, that I built in Rails um, a few years ago. Uh, It allows other editors and other people to come in and work with me on items and things like that, which is important for some of the other uh, newsletters I collaborate with people on. Um, but basically, every link that I see goes into this list. Um, you know, I go and look around things on Ruby Flow, on Reddit, um, you know, some of the other podcasts, uh, like Ruby 5, they often have things on there that uh, I'll have a look at. Uh, and just any anything and everything, you know, the official blogs and stuff like that, um, a few of them actually are automatically crawled by the system, the uh, aforementioned system. So, like, the official Rails blog and the official Ruby blog, all the items that from that get pushed into my queue to check out Um you know, each week, because I know they're probably going to be pretty newsworthy things. Uh, And so pretty much there's this process of collecting together tons and tons of stuff each week that is somehow relevant to Ruby or Rails. But then you actually have the curation process, which usually takes place on the day before publication. Sometimes it takes place the same day. It depends how late I'm running. But uh, then I'll go through, I'll kind of Archive or get rid of anything that's not that interesting. I'll uh, try and add information about, as you said, the people who produced the item or the site that the item came from. Uh, I'll often tag things, so like videos will be tagged as a video, because uh, some people just don't want to you know watch videos or they haven't got the time. But in the newsletter, they can easily tell whether it's a, a video or not, and just a whole bunch of things like that. I'll you know I'll write summaries, as you said. Um, try to write fewer of those as time goes by, because I find that actually. A lot of things people don't actually care about the summaries; they just want to get to the the, the thing itself. Um, so, what I will often do now instead is I will tweak the title of the item, um, or even write an entirely new title that kind of completely describes what it's about, if I can, because um, that's what people care about. Uh, so, yeah, it's just a process—you know, collection, curation, and then sort of testing and sending, uh, and then yeah, go around the cycle for another week. Um, of course, another big period of time is spent. Um, working with potential sponsors or people that, you know, like run events who perhaps want to, you know, us to put a mention of the event in and things like that. Uh, so there's a lot of communication goes on behind the scenes that you don't get to actually see in the finished item. Uh, it's kind of split almost 50-50 between that back-end, you know, communication and networking and the actual production.
0: Is the sponsor – so how much of the sponsor work is – sort of potentially self-service for the sponsor and if it is self-service then then what does the time and effort go into is it just helping them craft their link is it convincing them to purchase a spot you know, what's involved
1: none of our regular sponsors are self-served so we do not have a system for that <laughs> um mostly because i never actually intended to sell advertising um the whole point of the newsletters was to promote some of the stuff that i was doing so Uh, I you know, obviously had a Ruby book. I produced um, something called the Ruby 1.9 and the Ruby 2.0 walkthrough, which was like a screencast kind of set. Uh, I was doing training, uh, online training, um, called Ruby Reloaded, and just a whole ton of things I wanted to promote. And it worked very well at promoting those things, but then I found that I didn't really have the capacity to keep producing uh, new content um, or new products that I could sell in that regard. So when people reached out to me about advertising i thought well we'll just give it a go you know this is a temporary kind of solution Um, but then it's eventually become the main solution uh but that's why there's no system and that's why also it takes a lot of time because i actually want to get to know everyone that sponsors i don't want people just putting any old trash in um i make sure that you know no sponsor buys too many spots each uh you know each quarter is what we do it on now Uh, i don't want you know readers to get bored of the items. I, you If know, someone sponsors, I want it to be something that I think will actually help or be useful to subscribers and they will actually click on. Um, and that's pretty much true for the most part, and that's why sponsors keep coming back because you know they're the high quality ones that are actually getting some traction from it as well.
0: So speaking of clicking on, what um, what types of links, and I don't mean sponsor links, but links in general, get the most clicks? Have you done much looking into that?
1: Well, People will groan at this, but it's true that anything that is a list uh, will do well. <laughs> what, <laughs> are the, what, what, basic... what are the
0: top four things that people like? <laughs> That's what I should have asked.
1: Oh well, I couldn't actually give you the examples. <laughs> I'd have to. I, I do have the data, but I'd have to like do some digging around to get it up. But uh, you know, it's things like um, you know, like uh, 24 new things in Ruby 2.0 that you didn't know about, and that type of content uh, tends to do extremely well um anything that kind of you know promises to share some kind of secret or something that's new or uh you know the the 20 best ways of doing x y and z always seem to do really well um i try not to feature too much of that stuff because well i w- but if i do feature it i make sure it's high quality so i don't want to you know link to sort of list posts that are just literally lists of libraries and things like that i don't find that super valuable um but if someone's actually put some effort in and actually explaining what they're doing, lists are a very good mechanism of doing that. Uh, but then beyond that, actually, it's news doesn't do very well at all. So things about like new Rails releases or new releases of you know different libraries and things like that don't tend to do so well. Um, it's interesting content. It's things that are unexpected. It's uh, tutorials are very very popular. Uh, you know, if it's kind of our how how to you know build your own text messaging service with Ruby Rails and Twilio or something like that type of thing tends to do really well. Um, so it's often become a surprise because you know initially I wanted to feature like uh, releases of things. So, oh, there's a new version of uh, Rack or something like that. I'd put that at the top, but then I was finding people actually clicking on the things underneath that more than the release. Um, and I think it's interest. It's important to cover releases because it is news. Um, but I try and make it more of a, um, I don't make that the feature now, unless it's like a huge new version of Ruby or a huge new version of Rails, uh, it will tend to go further down in the email now.
0: So since you're a content guy, do you know why people like list items? I mean, I'm sure there's been a decent amount of research into this, but what, like, what's what's psychologically behind the interest in listicles?
1: I think it's because you know what you're going in for. Uh, you know, if you see someone says and it says twenty, you know, twenty things that you didn't know about Ruby two you already can see the format in your head before you even click it. It's going to be a list of things. Uh, it's going to be easily digestible. If you're not interested in anything beyond the first two or three, you know, items, if they look kind of you know lame, uh, you can just say, "Oh, well, this article sucks." Close. Uh, if it's more of a post about, you know, I'm going to discuss the virtues of rails adopting such and such a feature um and it's just like a whole page of text well then it's a lot harder to process because you kind of need to read the whole thing to get the feel of the person's ideas and whether they're talking sense uh at least with a list you can check out very easily um
0: so yeah, it's, like of that format. it's like pre digested to some degree yeah, kind of a little bit easier like
1: you've yeah it's kind of like you know with code like you can have this like whole big page of kind of obfuscated code and it's just a big mess, or you can have the code that's kind of been linted properly, which is a lot more attractive to look at, but then you can even go down to like having like a syntax a syntax tree which is completely unambiguous um, I would guess like list posts are almost like these kind of syntax tree kind of structures like because you can just literally look at it, look at a couple of the things, and really get a feel for what it's about the quality and what it you know all that type of stuff.
0: I wonder if inside of big companies, you know, like a general electric or Microsoft, that kind of place. If listicle, the listicle format has taken over email, you'd think so. Cause if it's like the way to communicate your ideas in ways that people don't mind reading, I would think that like all emails would become listicles by now.
1: Sadly, I suspect that's not the case. Um, <laughs> yeah, I must admit, I think people just have different skill levels in different media. So I tend to do very well in email. Um, Less so on the web, and perhaps uh, worst of all in kind of uh, live situations like this, where I tend to be a bit more verbose Mm -hmm. than I would be in email.
0: I guess the irony now that I think about it of your your um, your point about list links being the most popular is that Ruby Weekly is a is a list link in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. I should have. I mean, that should have been obvious to me, but you know, so. If if someone's reading, a, if they like to read a list uh, format in the first place, of course they'd like to link to more list formats.
1: Mm. I mean, w- one thing that I should touch on is that even though I say that certain things aren't popular, sometimes they're important to link anyway. So, like, if there's a library that's released that does something that's, like, really, really niche... I still want to get it in if it's really good. Um, so let's say there's something to do with um, computer vision or like face detection or something like that, uh, doing that in Ruby. Well, that wouldn't be a popular link. Um, it's interesting, but it wouldn't be very popular. Um, I will tend to still put it in because I actually believe very strongly in uh, people encountering kind of moments of serendipity with content. I do not agree with the whole idea of that. You know, this could be run by a machine um, that's just going to go and look through Twitter. What's the stuff that all Rubyists are talking about this week? Put it in an email. Um, you know, that could be done and people have tried it, uh, but they don't ever, these things don't ever seem to take off. Um, and it's a little bit actually like here in the UK. We have the the BBC, which probably everyone will know, Sherlock, Dr. Holmes, all that type of stuff. Um, but they, as much as they have these big programs, They also have a responsibility, um, and this isn't true of a lot of stations in the US, uh, is that they have to represent all the different, like, cultural groups that we have in the UK, uh, but then also, like, um, cultural interests. So, you know, they have to do documentaries about opera and put them on. Uh, they have to do shows about poetry and put them on, um, because it's part of their remit of the fact that they receive money from everyone in the country, kind of almost like a tax, if you will. Um, that they have to do this. Um, and I believe in that kind of mechanism. Uh, maybe it's a very British kind of way of thinking, but I believe in that mechanism for the email as well. I have to put things in there that you might not like.
0: Well, the U.S. the, the U.S. used to have something similar to that. Well, I mean, it still does by law. So any um, any television station that's broadcasting over the public airwaves has to serve the public interest in some way because the the airwaves are a commons. And I remember right. when, I, when I was a kid, that was that was taken a little more seriously because there was a decent amount of talk about you know how many hours of children's programming has to be on and what's reasonable beyond during certain hours of certain days of the week, etc. But I think that the over-the-air television is that that's died down so much as someone's focus that and and being replaced by the combination of cable and satellite and and. Uh, And the internet, I guess now that it just never it doesn't have the same sort of focus that the BBC does because they're not tax supported. I mean, here we've got the public broadcasting system and other public television that's taxpayer supported, but that's sort of a bit more of a niche. Not it's not quite as mainstream as BBC. Mm. So, uh, uh, how has running the uh, the Ruby Weekly changed over the years? Is it so you're on episode or episode issue two hundred five now? is producing it similar at a episode or at issue 206 as it was at issue 26.
1: I would say yes. Uh a lot of things have changed so like the templates changed so I've learned different things or tested different ideas. Um some of my ideas about, you know, like we just mentioned kind of having a more rich tapestry of items, uh you, you know, my ideas have kind of uh, fleshed out in that regard but generally no if you go back and we you know have a full archive on the site you can click and go back and look at the main headlines you know all the way back to i think ruby weekly only goes back to like issue 15 for some reason some like production change um but you can pretty much see it's a very similar type of structure and very similar approach um if anything they were perhaps a bit smaller in the past uh over time you know um they tended to creep up in size, but uh, try and keep a control on that. But no, very similar, I would say.
0: As you've programmed less in the last few years, has that made it harder to to produce a, a newsletter that you think is uh, I don't know representative of what programmers want to read? Or do you feel like all the years programming sort of ingrained in you what's interesting?
1: I think, to a certain extent. Uh, some of the kind of the skills and just like the amount of practice I've had just sniffing around, working out what's relevant and what's not and you know obviously I still have more than enough skills to sort of take any library that comes along and just give it a try and uh, you know or just look at the code and see whether it's complete nonsense or not Um, that seems to have worked out very well for Ruby at least Um, not perhaps so true in some of the other niches that I'm in like um, well JavaScript you know I'm not too bad at JavaScript but I'm not sort of, uh, you know, one of the uh, latest super elite node programmers or anything by, you know, any stretch of the imagination. Um, So sometimes I can get caught out there, but luckily I have people I can email and sort of lean on a bit. But I actually think some of the skills in curating and sniffing things out actually counteract some of that reduction in coding agility, uh, just in the same way that, um, you know, a journalist... Uh, you know, who's always out, out on the road and moving between countries can do a good story whatever country they're in. Uh, they have to get to know the people and they have to get to know some of the context, but you know, a journalist doesn't need to necessarily be an Afghanistani journalist, for example, to go into Afghanistan and write about what's going on there um, from a reasonably informed perspective. So that's kind of how I see it. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm a journalist because I'm more in a curatorial role, but I can reasonably easily now that I had all this practice go into an area that I don't know about so let's say I wanted to do something about Java for example Um, you know I can read Java I've actually ported code from Java to Ruby and stuff like that but in terms of the ecosystem I know very little Uh, but I think you know with a certain amount of time I could use that kind of curatorial nose to work out who are the important people where are the important projects so yeah, I don't see it as being a flaw as such. Uh, it's actually really a bonus in some ways. Hmm.
0: Which of the uh the main newsletters is your favorite to uh, work on?
1: Oh no, it's like making me choose between my kids.
0: Um <laughs> Well, except they, they don't guess... have they don't have feelings, so JavaScript Weekly won't mind if it's not number one or won't celebrate if it is.
1: <laughs> I don't think yeah, this is true. um I don't know. I guess I've, I've been frustrated with all of them at some point or another. Um, <laughs>
0: you're, are you talking about your ki- kids now or the newsletters?
1: Well, I'm not going to say. Uh, <laughs> but no, it's funny, just, you know, because obviously, like uh, many people who, you know, do some development at least, the interests come and go. So some weeks you're just totally frustrated with Ruby for some reason, and you're like, oh, JavaScript's great. And then like a few weeks later, it's completely the opposite way around. Um, so I couldn't really pick one. Um, I guess just you know being the first one, Ruby Weekly will always have a, a special place with me, and because it's kind of almost like my home language, if you will, it's the one that I know the most about and you know, the most proficient with. Um, but it still frustrates me from time to time.
0: So I should take a break and do a sponsor. I really should have done that about 15 minutes ago. <laughs> <But> <laughs> there we are.
1: You could uh, probably find a way of splicing it in.
0: No, no. No, that would require too much editing work, <laughs> I think. So uh, so this week's episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to us by CodeShip. CodeShip is a free continuous delivery service that's really simple to use. Have you used a, a continuous integration or continuous delivery service before, Peter?
1: I have not. Um, I've played with Travis, but I've uh, not used it in production.
0: Yeah. So CodeShip is like Travis or some of the others that people know. Um it's, uh, it's actually quite good. I, uh, uh, I hadn't used it before they became a sponsor. And then about uh, three or four times in, I said, you know, if I keep reading these ads, I better, <laughs> I better use it. And it turns out it's my favorite. I use it now as my go-to CI solution. So if you want to, uh, get to use it or get to know it, they offer 100 builds per month for five private projects for free, which is new. So it's sort of a freemium model now where you can keep using code ship as your ci solution for forever um as long as you're only doing 100 builds per month and then as you are deploying more and and the builds increase you have to move up to their paid plans their whole product has a pretty big focus on usability it's super easy to use um i think their blank states are pretty good so you know when you're first using the product it's quite clear what to do and then as it's uh full of your your builds and settings and whatnot it uh It sort of morphs into a a product that's a bit more fit for something you're used to. Um, You can set up a continuous integration server uh, with CodeChip in a few easy steps, and your software will automatically deploy when all your tests have passed. CodeChip has great support for multiple languages and test frameworks. You can easily integrate with GitHub or Bitbucket for code hosting and then deploy to wherever your servers are, whether they're on Heroku or AWS or... No jitsu or your own servers or whatever. They also have a free plan um, in addition to the 100 builds per month where you can get a complete feel for the product um, for a, a limited time. Setup only takes a few minutes. You can find out more at codeship.io slash 5x5ruby. And if you use the, uh, the offer code 5x5ruby, you'll get 20% off any plan for three months when you sign up. They blog quite a bit at blog.codeship.io. You can learn more about the company and what they're all about uh, on that blog. And I had their CTO on a few episodes ago just to learn more about their company and, and about the people behind the company. And it's a pretty good episode if you want to listen to that to uh, to find out more. Anyways, thanks to CodeShip for sponsoring this episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast. All right.
1: Yeah, they, they actually sponsor uh, Ruby Weekly occasionally as well, so yeah i fully endorse
0: this message <laughs> <laughs> yay code <ship. laughs> uh all right so uh i see on twitter now uh and then that you offer to purchase newsletters from people i think uh, have i seen that right am i remembering that right
1: i've kind of um made overtures of that nature but uh, it's not something that's ever actually happened
0: why do you why do you figure why hasn't it happened
1: Um, it's hard to say. I think obviously one of the reasons is that there aren't actually that many. And I know some people say, oh, I'm subscribed to 10 different things. But really, in the grand scheme of things, compared to blogs or Twitter accounts, there's not that many out there. Uh, But then once people actually do create their own and they kind of have uh, a certain level of success with them, it's easy to – I have to think about this carefully as I say this – Kind of overinflate the value of them, and I, I don't actually mean that in a negative way. But what I'm saying is, if you, you know, you have an email list and you build it up to say 5,000 subscribers, it's actually probably worth more to you than if than like 10 times having a 50k list. If you see what I mean, kind of having that initial thing, there's a lot of value wrapped up in that that perhaps wouldn't make business sense for someone like me uh, to purchase that list because you know you put such a high value on it at that stage.
0: So so, pretty much there aren't big ones to buy, and the small ones to buy are priced out because they are worth more to the person that owns them to you than to you at that size. Yeah, or, or,
1: pe- yeah, or people just aren't tris- interested in selling them because I think this is something that I realized very early on, um, and I think a lot of programmers are now beginning to realize that kind of owning or having control over... Uh, Kind of a way of getting your ideas out and interacting with other people is actually very, very valuable. Um, so you know, I've been put into situations where, uh, you know, certain companies have said, uh, you know, not, like you know, really good jobs, things that you know be quite interesting to do, uh, but it's like you know, oh, we want to like shut the newsletters down, or you know, or like take control of them or do whatever um and i have to think well actually you know i'm kind of sat on like a huge asset here like here if i want to do anything i have this audience of people that trust me and you know i can get straight in touch with um and this is you know of extreme value so like if you wanted to like have me stop doing it or whatever like i just i don't want a salary that you can like fire me in two months or whatever like could possibly happen you know i I actually need to get the value of what this asset is worth and uh, obviously you know that uh, doesn't tend to be a very uh, popular response um with people who don't want to buy email newsletters anyway um (laughs) and and so yeah so i think a lot of developers are in this situation now though because they've seen people like um jeff atwood for example or scott hanselman um and obviously there's a whole ton in the ruby world as well um that have built up an audience that is kind of independent of their career uh, that is very important to them. Um, and, you know, that that their following is just as important and just as valuable as their actual job and their career. Um, except in my case, I've kind of actually turned that into my business. It's not just an add-on for being a developer for Microsoft or GitHub or wherever. Uh, you know, I've actually... In, I'm interested enough in content and in publishing enough to actually have thought, well, hang on, I might as well just make this my job now. Right.
0: Um, so that's where I've gone. So I saw you, um, I saw on the Rails Rumble website that you're, you're um, on the committee in one way or another. I think you told me by email that you're, you help with some promotion around the Rails Rumble. Um, so if you were going to compete in the Rails Rumble this year, do you have the, like the great idea that you think could win? Would no, you would you um, compete in the Rails <laughs> Rumble again?
1: <laughs> uh, no, I don't. I don't compete mostly because of that that role um, kind of uh, invalidates me from winning. Um, but actually, I kind of almost have the role because I kind of just didn't want to enter. So it's kind of <laughs> it's a bit of a weird situation. Um, I don't know. It's not really my sort of thing. Um, if I'm going to do a contest, I want to do it in somewhere in, in kind of a, an area that is new, that is different to what I tend to do. So I don't do a lot of development, but the development I do is relating to, you know, building or maintaining Ruby or Rails apps. So I don't really want to be doing that in a contest situation. Um, So I do do hackathons, um, I do, like, game jams and things like that, but I always try and do things that are just totally alien to what I do. So game jams, you know, as I said, I'm not a game developer, but I enjoy trying to make a game um, and it usually totally sucks but I always learn something interesting Um, but then also I go uh, at least one you know each year I go to a thing here in the UK Um, the next one is actually this Saturday called Leeds Hack uh, which is kind of like a hackathon but it's not done by a company it's just kind of come up with the craziest just thing that you want to come up with Um, and then kind of almost everyone wins a prize just because it's kind of fun Um, so last year I took my MIDI keyboard along just for the fun of it and I was like, what can I do with this? Uh, and I eventually like built this. Um, I can't remember where I built it, in Node or Ruby now. Uh, but I built this system so that you could play on your keyboard, but it would translate what you were playing and actually improve what you were playing. Um, so if you hit a note that was out of key, it would actually change the MIDI message to be a note that was in key. So you could almost just sit there and hammer away at a keyboard and it would sound roughly musical in some way or
0: another. So there were things like
1: that. Um, Like auto, auto tune
0: for MIDI, that kind of thing. Yes,
1: exactly. Uh, (laughs) I actually think I have the code up on GitHub, so I can probably remind myself what I wrote it in. But uh, yeah, it's things like that. Just, just come up with something crazy and just do it. Um, As you know, you've probably got the idea from now that I don't like doing any one thing uh i always just want to try something random and different you know if someone invited me to sort of make some fashion for a catwalk i'd probably give it a bash just to you know see what a mess i could make of it so yeah i'm the same way with hacking as well
0: i'm interested in the game angle i haven't built a i really haven't built much of a game yet the only thing that i did that was interesting was remember when letterpress became popular on ios that that game yes. so i i wrote a uh like a bot that could play letterpress pretty well, <laughs> like could, could win easily. Yeah. And that was kind of fun. Like, cause I had to, in order to write the, the bot that could play letterpress, I had to implement the game first. Right. Cause then it would, you know, it, it had to know how to play the game in order to play the game. And, uh, that was kind of fun. But, um, but I haven't built a game that was, was fun in in any way to the outside world. And my kids are at the age where they play games constantly. They are obsessed with Minecraft. I mean, there's no, Mm. there are no words that I could use to, to, to explain how obsessed they are with Minecraft. And, uh, they also like, uh, Pokemon. And so I think if I was a cooler dad, I would sort of channel my programming abilities and whatever creative energy I have and, and do something related to that, like build a mod for Minecraft or, or a Pokemon game, or something like that, but I haven't done it.
1: There is actually a book out from the Pragmatic Programmers, and I can't remember what language it's in. It might be Java, I can't remember. Um, But it came out just like a few weeks ago or something, and it's all about uh, kind of coding and scripting Minecraft and stuff. Oh, really?
0: I think I may get that. I haven't read
1: it, but you know it's going to be good, because obviously it's from them, so... That I can might write, be an interesting place to start.
0: I can write Java okay, so I mean, I I don't mind the language issue all that much. It's just not what I do all day. Um, mm. And I've yeah. got a feeling but, I mean, that game the, programming is fun. Yeah. Uh,
1: obviously, you know, doing it as a job probably is not quite so fun. I follow indie developers, and they have a lot of trials and tribulations. It's almost like, you know, it's almost like being an artist in a way. You know, because it's very easy to be broken. You know. living off noodles when you're a game developer in a way that is perhaps not so true with web app developers Um, so it's interesting to see what they do and what they go through so I just take part in the Ludum Dare contests um, that uh, Notch kind of famously he didn't, obviously they'd been around a long time before he got involved but just his participation um, and for anyone who doesn't know Notch is the Minecraft guy uh, just his participation in these contests um, kind of really made them take off uh, so it's yeah always really enjoyed uh, doing the odd one of those um but then i've also done um like uh, robot uh programming games and i don 't mean like real life robots or you know helicopters or anything uh these are literally like bots that run in a an app within you know on on your, on your com- on your machine and you you code them in somewhere or another uh to kind of fight against each other um and i actually did um a session at a well, kind of a user group type thing about fifty people, uh, and we had this kind of contest. And you know, I don't know a huge amount of Java, and most of the people there didn't either. I think they were mostly like .NET people and stuff, but they all had a crack. And then we had like half an hour of just kind of like uh, pitching all these bots against each other on the main screen and kind of having elimination rounds and stuff. And it was just a really fun evening. Um, so that's actually one way, perhaps, to get into uh, you know some of the the fun parts of game programming without actually making a game is to look up robot programming games mm-hmm. um, and sort of have a play around with that. Cause you get this kind of visual experience that you don't get, you know, when you're building a rails app or whatever.
0: Are you into Minecraft at all?
1: I was into Minecraft very heavily for about six months. Um, and yeah, kind of got that obsession that many sort of kids nowadays have. But then after that, I kind of depleted my, attention span to it. So now I look at some of the videos and look at some of what's going on but yeah, I've played perhaps an hour in the last year at most.
0: So um, earlier this week uh, I offered to my kids that we could watch the uh, the Minecraft documentary movie. I think it's called yeah, The it's Story good. of Mojang. And yeah. Their interest in Minecraft I think was like perfectly explained by how they felt about this movie. So it's, it's like an hour and a half full length documentary. We got 35 minutes in and they were kind of enjoying it. I mean they got to to hear Notch talk and see, um, you know, some of the other programmers behind it, and see them at the conference and all these things. But anyway,s thirty five minutes in, they said, "We think we're going to go play Minecraft instead." <laughs> it ditched the documentary, and I, I think that that's it. They'd rather, you know, they'd rather be in the world, sort of, I don't know, exploring and yeah. Building.
1: I mean, it's, it's aimed at it's aimed at adults. I would say that documentary it is more interesting to developers or indie gamers, um, indie game developers, things like that. Um, it 's a bit like I took my kids to Disneyland last week, and they have this whole kind of area that uh is all about kind of the background of animation and stuff, and they were a little bit interested in that um but it wasn 't something you could stretch them out for, whereas queuing up for an hour for a ride, you know oh wow we 're going to go on the ride, so uh, it 's almost the same situation, but uh yeah, I guess it 's good that some of these documentaries exist for you know those of us that really dig learning about the background um Another one actually I really enjoyed was the Fog Creek one. Um, from wow i mean it's like nine years ago now i think it was um i never saw Ardvart. that i never saw yeah, that. that was a really good one um if you if you google up if you google fog creek documentary they actually released it for free on youtube um in the end um i mean i bought it back in the time uh, on dvd but uh, yeah you can watch it for free now um and it's just really cool just to see how a company uh you know took a bunch of uh, interns under their wing and got them to like build a whole uh product from scratch Um, complete with completely random things in between. Like they have this weird uh, obsession with working out if they can think like jump between two buildings or something. They're doing all these calculations to try and work it out and stuff like that. So it's just fun to get a background to programming. Um, So I really love documentaries of that nature. I wish there were more.
0: Now, what were they building at the time? Did they have fog bugs then?
1: Yeah, they had fog bugs, but they were working on a new thing. Um, I can't remember what it's called. I think think it's Copilot. Hmm. Um was this kind of um v n c uh type system for doing tech support, so you just tell someone you know just go to this website, install this software, and then I can control your machine. This is before like the Mac you know had it all built in and stuff um and they got them to build that in like a summer uh, you know hmm. so um yeah, and I think they actually did it as well. I think you know they they completely finished the thing so Uh, A very interesting documentary, if anyone wants to check that out, it's well worth uh, watching. I mean, some people found it boring, though. So I think it does say a lot about how much do you care about the meta details of things. Um, And I guess one of the things I perhaps get across in everything I do, doing things like Ruby Weekly and stuff like that, is that I actually care perhaps more about the background of things and the making of things than the actual thing. So that's how I can do Ruby Weekly, JavaScript Weekly, Node Weekly, HTML5 Weekly, because I really care about the people behind it and the stories and, uh, you know, why are we working on this web platform stuff, than perhaps necessarily some of the demos or the games that come out of the end of it.
0: That's how I feel about the NBA right now, actually. Right. That, you know, I like watching the games for sure, but I'm really into the story behind it and, you know, right. the, how things change over time, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. So, what's next for you is it to is it to build up the newsletter empire further, or do you think you'll branch into something brand new?
1: It's really hard to say um I mean one of the things that I've always wanted to do is because I have all this data and I have this system with all the links and so on. I want to put that on the web in some way that isn't just a weekly thing that you know as soon as I edit an item and I save it, that can go onto like a like a like perhaps a tumble log type format or you know things like that. Um, so I do want to go back to the web in some way because I think I am missing an audience that just does not want to go on to email. Um, but beyond that, yeah, there are other topics that I want to explore. Um, so like the whole kind of uh, web operations kind of space I think is very, very... Uh, ripe for things right now you've probably seen this with like sponsors and stuff Uh, you know it's like your new relics and your code ships and you know all those types of companies that are working at the ops end that seems to be a really really fertile ground now um, just for everything so I'm really interested in moving towards that a bit Um, so yeah I'm looking at lots of different things moving broadly in topics but then also into different media um, and perhaps even getting back to producing some of my own products although I'm not going to
0: Hold my breath on that one. <laughs> Are you personally interested in the operations side of things?
1: Uh, to an extent, because I, I mean, I run my own operations for you know, all the different services and things that I do, or any clients that I used to work with. So I'm interested in it, but it's not. You know, I'm not an ops person. I'm not a sysadmin. So um, I'm a I'm a dabbler, which is uh, pretty much true for almost everything I do.
0: I would be more interested, except Heroku is so easy and. Like, nothing that I do is at consumer web scale, you know what I mean? So, uh, nor would I do anything that was, you know, had a million users every day or something like that. Um, and, you know, for non-massive scale, the the options are just so easy now, like absurdly easy. It sort of, I don't know, uh, uh, sapped the interest out of me for the topic, but I get why people are interested in it.
1: Yeah, I find it interesting just from a geeky point of view, you know, why people set up like media centres on their own instead of just buying one that works mm-hmm. and you know, so I, I find it interesting from that level, but then I must admit I'm probably like Heroku's worst kind of customer to a certain extent. Um in the not that I'm price sensitive as such, but I'm kind of sensitive to oh, I need to do this one extra thing. Oh, I've got to pay for that. Right. And now I want to add this on, oh I've got to pay for that as well. Um I'm one of these people that would rather pay perhaps a larger amount and then get a whole bunch of goodies within that that I can use. Um, So I know Heroku's whole kind of pitch is that it's good that you can just add things on, but for some reason my personality kind of clashes with that and I think, oh, no, I'm going to be spending another, adding another $10 a month about this feature and so on and so forth. And um, with uh, certain clients that works really well. uh, Those are the clients that they're going for. Uh, But for me, you know, if I'm perhaps doing a hack day and I have this product uh, project that I want to do that's kind of a bit of fun, uh, and then it's only oh, I need to add Redis to this. Oh, I need to add Postgres to this. Oh, I need to add this to this. It's like oh, hang on, I've just spent a hundred dollars for a month of hosting this app. <laughs> um, right. I would much rather just then go and get a you know a, a cheap VPS and just do it myself and make a real hash of it. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I am not because I'm I'm always experimenting. I am not in that customer base. Uh, you know, if I was building stuff for clients or I was a company that had long-term services I need to run, then yes, Heroku
0: makes total sense, as you say. I sort of see it as a as a game, too. Like, how much can you get out of the free Heroku box? Because the answer is a lot. I think that it's This is a li- true, yeah. You know, the, the, it takes a little bit of effort to get more out of it than, than would be obvious, but it's not impossible, yeah. for sure. That
1: kind of content has always done well in the newsletters, actually. When people have these posts like how to use... Um, oh, I can't remember the name now of half the systems involved, but like some of these different systems that you can use to run multiple processes where perhaps you couldn't before and all that type of stuff. Right. When people write articles and tutorials about that, and I put it in the newsletters, always very popular. People are always trying to find a way of gaming the system or improving their efficiency in some way, so that's uh, always a winner.
0: So you know what um, You know what I think would be fun if you ran? I'm going to throw out ideas for you to not do. Um, Go on. Is... I would definitely be interested in competing in a little contest where uh where people um came up with bots that could write the Ruby Weekly newsletter and especially if there was a way to test how how effective they were. So, cuz you said you know people have tried and obviously it's tricky. But I think, you know, I've seen some clever stuff in this area before, and it'd be fascinating to see if, you know, kind of like the Netflix challenge back that they did a handful of years ago, to see if someone could come up with a better algorithm that was able to predict uh, or to produce, you know, the recommendations that would be more effective than their current engine. It'd be interesting to see if someone could come up with a bot that was able to generate, you know, higher click-through rates than um, the human edited one. Like, let me
1: say this... Well, I only say this half tongue in cheek, but uh, I think this is a very bad idea, and no one should attempt this. <laughs> then Why? <laughs> We're going to put me out of business. Um, well, I know that's not entirely true. There is uh, a lot more to it than that. But uh, yeah, I guess the thing, at least in Netflix's case, is that if someone had solved that problem, it's going to help their business because it's going to get people to watch more videos and spend more money, you know, and keep subscribed and stuff. Whereas if someone can produce a newsletter, then yeah, then. Um, That is my main product. Yeah, but but, uh, but then
0: it'd be like, let's say you could use that, you know, part of the deal is that you're able to use whatever algorithms people use. You know, they have to be open source. They have to be uh, uh, published. Now, I guess someone else could use them too, but they don't have your list, so good luck.
1: Well, this is true. I mean, there is a certain first-mover advantage, um, and there's also kind of – some people – well, actually, I'd say a lot of people really like the fact – um, that there is a brand and that there is a name behind things. So the problem with some of the automated systems, like if you if you compare like Google News when they were like really pushing it hard like they were doing it with Google Plus last year, um, but they were really pushing Google News, like this is the way you're going to read news, you don't need to go to New York Times, you don't need to go to TechCrunch or whatever, you just come to Google News and we aggregate everything. Well that really didn't work out. I mean there are people that use Google News but in terms of people actually feeling attached to publications, people still say, Oh, I read the New York Times, oh I read TechCrunch, oh I go to Hacker News, or things that have this kind of brand and aren't assumed to be completely automated. Um, even if they are done by large groups of people like a uh, Reddit or you know Hacker News, there is still this idea of there being humans behind it and it being a a publication of sorts. Um so I've never seen anything that's totally automated really take off in a, an amazing way. I think uh, that, in that regard.
0: I think that the community that reads Ruby weekly would get a kick out of that though. Like I, I agree with every, everything you said, like people like that you're behind it. You know, they can think of you and your blue glasses as the, as the, the face of the newsletters. They like that it's been around forever. They like that you've been in the community, you know, et cetera. Um, But, you know, we're all all hackers, too, so we like the idea that, you know, hey, what could a machine do? I think fusing those would be, like, like if that was the Rails Rumble opportunity for next month, I think I'd be game.
1: Yeah, I'm always looking at ways to improve my tooling. Um, So, obviously, I need to keep improving my efficiency as I add new newsletters, because, obviously, my amount of time is finite. Um, So, obviously, one part of that that I'm very keen to do, that perhaps relates to what you just said, is actually you know, bringing human and machine together somewhat more so that, uh, you know, code can find a lot more stuff and can uh, do things like pull author names out of things and uh, have a go at doing certain summaries and things, even though it's probably going to need editing. Um, so, yes, there is a certain amount of work there that can be done. Um,
0: well, here's another I, Here's another related idea, like, back, back to, like, uh, what I'm trying to solve for is what's a contest that I'd be interested in participating in. So one yeah. would be you know, what about a, uh, what about a bot that suggests links into your sort of, uh, queue? Yeah. And, and that's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. That, that the, the winning, uh, the winning bot is the one that suggests the most links that get included that others didn't suggest like <laughs> yeah. unique and included ratio. Mm. Um, man, that'd be super fun, right? You know, can someone come up? Cause it'd be pretty easy to come up with the obvious stuff. Um, But it wouldn't be that easy to come up with uh, not obvious stuff without generating a ton of noise. And, uh, you know, could you get the signal to noise ratio pretty good while you also got the uniqueness ratio good? I don't know. That'd be fun.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have I've seen people, you know, just like make very basic attempts at that and they get all types of weird stuff turn up. Like, they get image searches for Ruby come up, and there's, like, a picture of a gem or something, and, you know, <laughs> that like, there's, there's, I think there's a, a TV show in the U.S. called The Ruby Show, um, which is nothing to do with programming whatsoever, and, like, you get synopses of that coming up, and, you know, it's it's almost like someone's just done a Google search and gone, oh, that's our newsletter now. Um so yeah actually getting that right is uh, definitely a challenge
0: yeah i mean maybe maybe it's your point you need the you know for the foreseeable future you need a human filter ultimately but that human could certainly be helped out with some robot friends or by some robot Mm. friends
1: yeah i think if i if i was going to do it like just because i'm a little bit more devious um i might launch a new newsletter without sort of making a big deal out of it and sort of see whether a a robot can kind of fool everyone, um, <laughs> you know, in a in a topic that I know nothing about.
0: Oh, um, that'd be great! Very
1: intriguing, because I mean, obviously, there are lots of different kind of heuristics and um, things that you know I've picked up that I that that I can use to say is content good or is it not? Mm-hmm. Is this a good source or is it not? So if I could take that knowledge and boil it down into you know a bot like you're saying, um, would my bot make a good gardening newsletter? You know, could, we, could someone take that code they've written and turn it to anything um, and get a good result out of it? And I think that would probably be quite exciting as a contest in that oh, it has yeah. to be flexible. Um, so you're not just trying to reproduce Ruby Weekly, but you're trying to produce, you know, I give you a topic of Halloween. Well, is it going to produce a bunch of good stuff about Halloween? Like, Actually, that's a, bit, a little bit too temporal, but something of that ilk, um, you know, could it turn to any topic and do it?
0: So that'd be fun. That's a, I agree that that's actually a great contest for you to run. Imagine an an event that was, uh, you know, everyone has to produce an application that writes a newsletter for some arbitrary topic that's given, you know, N hours before the end of the, like, so the contest is 48 hours long and at, you know, hour 36, you give the topic and then the question is, you know, which one produces the best newsletter. Be sort of fun,
1: and then and then once the contest is finished, there's going to be about two hundred new email newsletters launched in the next
0: twenty four hours. Oh, you cut out there. So repeat the last um. sentence. <laughs> so,
1: yeah, right. the only problem with that is that you probably after the contest have two hundred new email newsletters launched in the next twenty four hours. <laughs> no, I mean, out again.
0: Part of your devious scheme has got to be that you own all of the, all of the, uh, the output. Yeah. <laughs> you, you'll secretly, uh, you'll secretly consume all of the creative energy of the would be, uh, competitors.
1: So it's just like, just like an American hackathon.
0: <laughs> exactly. It's like everything people fear. <laughs> yeah. Come to newsletters. Well, Peter, you've been very generous with your time and, uh, why don't uh why don't you uh, promote whatever it is that we haven't talked about that you'd like people to know about?
1: Yeah, I just think it'd be cool if people want to sign up at Rubyweekly.com, um you know JavaScriptweekly.com and any topics that interest you, there's links all over the place to different newsletters that we've got and stuff. So um you know yeah. some of the some of the ones that are actually perhaps not quite so popular that are still growing, like uh, dbweekly.com is quite interesting because it's all about databases from a, a high level uh, you know, what are the new paradigms and what are the new things that are going on there and some of the releases of Mongo and stuff like that. So that's kind of fun. Um, but then also you can follow me on Twitter at uh, Peter C, just P-E-T-E-R-C. And uh, as I sort of mentioned much earlier on, trying to keep it high value, trying to keep it interesting. So, uh, yeah, come on there. Hopefully you'll find some cool uh, 80s retro stuff. It's one of my kind of little uh, kicks I do.
0: Now, we are are we allowed to interact with you at this point? Is, is yes,
1: our- I am. I am now communicating. But uh, yeah, if I don't like, if I, if I think something's going to get nasty, I'll just kind of move on. But uh, so yeah, smart. absolutely.
0: All right, great. Well, thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. And for anyone that wants to uh, connect with me, I'm barely known on Twitter.